The Institute of Directors professional development programmes equip learners with the knowledge, skills and mindset to be enterprising and innovative, enabling organisations to become more productive and competitive. The IOD's programmes ensure directors develop an awareness of their interpersonal skills, legal and business knowledge, financial acumen, ethical questioning, decision-making abilities and the highest standards of professional conduct. The IOD is the only institute in the world to offer internationally recognised qualifications designed by directors for directors under Royal Charter. For more information on IOD training, visit iod.com today. Welcome to the Institute of Directors Business Podcast, a podcast where we interview directors from all over Scotland about their careers and business. I am your host, Marlene Lowe, UK Director for Four Bytes and long-term IOD member. Welcome to today's episode with Andy Doig. He's got the rare combination of having experience in both the BPO world and the IT sector. And with a vast experience in transitions, transformation and consulting, Andy is a leader, coach, and a guide. Words that come to mind to describe him are pragmatic, fair, and ambitious. And in today's episode, he shares his knowledge in outsourcing, consulting, and what it means to be a leader. So, um, I spent, uh, I had two different careers actually. I had a career as a, uh, a very junior, extremely unsuccessful academic uh, <laughs> in, in, in chemical engineering. And the world was a far better and safer place for the fact that I no longer do that. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's just, I, uh, I actually was, uh, as part of that, I wanted to go and do a PhD in India. And uh, I was being interviewed at the Indian High Commission um, for a place at Pune. And mm -hmm. uh, it was the week after the Bhopal disaster. And it was possibly the shortest, sharpest interview of my entire life. So anyway, um, I, I gave up. And I actually got sick uh, in my mid-20s. And I was, I was ill for nearly two years. And, um, but it, that was kind of my North Star. I had, I had an ME. And uh, I wasn't able to get out of the house for a long time. I've got ME. Oh, wow. Well, I can wow. really em empathize because it's a horrible, horrible thing. Um, it is. But, yeah. but it, but, but but in my case, it was the making of me because um, yeah. I, I spent a good six to nine months just thinking, what did I really want from life? And mm. it turned out it wasn't to be a really rubbish academic in a subject that I didn't like. And, <laughs> uh, so I um, I figured I would have become a management consultant um, because I had a, a strong computing background. So even though it was in, in the mid to late 80s at that time, it actually created an artificial intelligence, which... Uh, created it, modeled its own models of chemical engineering problems and then solved them for itself. Um, wow. So, um, yeah, uh, it was, that was good fun. So I was a, I was a C and Unix jock uh, and prologue and all that sort of stuff. Um, so anyway, I, I went up to become a management consultant. I joined a company called Anderson Consulting um, and had a real fun career there, um, on and off for 20-odd years. Uh, I was with them for six years. Um, highlighted the first part of that was probably spending 18 months building the uh, the first online ordering system uh, for telephony products in California um, wow. for Pacific Bell, Pacific Stasis. Um, 
Anyway, came, came back to the UK and uh, decided I wanted a life, so I left Anderson Consulting. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, I wandered in the wilderness for two to three years doing nothing very exciting or very good and ended up back at Anderson Consulting just before we incorporated and spent um, the next sort of 14 years there. Um, wow. Doing a bunch of stuff from systems buildings through strategy consulting through to actually a large part of my career was in outsourcing. Um, so uh, initially IT outsourcing, but then BPO, BPO was, was a big thing for me. Uh, yeah. Probably the most fun part of that was um, I, I outsourced uh, payroll for Microsoft globally, um, everyone except for the US anyway. Um, and that was fun, making them have uh, do their payroll exactly the same way all the way around the world, despite different cultures and languages and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then I left um, Anderson uh, Accenture because I, I kind of had enough to run my own business. So yeah. I did my own consulting business for about four years and I retired last year. Excellent. <laughs> well, that's that's a very good whirlwind story of, <laughs> of where you've been and where you are now. <laughs> good. Good. Wow. So, okay. First question of, of so many that you've triggered. Um, why chemical engineering? Uh, I come from a very strong working class background uh, in Dundee and um, I kind of had, you know, I had the sense when I was looking to leave school, I left school a year early actually because I kind of had enough, um, it was time to go. Um, and uh, I had the sense that I was supposed to do something practical, pragmatic, and you know, I'd, I was never after a job, I was always after a career. Um, and in fact, my, my dad was a, he had been an electrician uh, and uh, he, was, he was by then a, a teacher of uh, maths and physics. So I sort of went down the maths and physics route and, and became an engineer. And it was a crazy thing because I'm just not an engineer. <laughs> just, I don't think like an engineer. I'm not interested in engineering. Um, and uh, But there you go. But you know what? I, kind of the subject you do at university is almost irrelevant because what you learn at university is how to learn and yeah. how, to do, how to be a problem solver and a thinker and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, um, so that was my chemical engineering. Okay. And when it came to business, so having mm -hmm. that business interest, mm -hmm. where was that born from? Well, that's bizarre. Um, so I was, um, at the age of 16, a member of the Communist Party because um, I was a real lefty and I, I thought that uh, communism was a way to, uh, to right all the ills of the world. Um, yeah. And unlike everybody else in the world, just by I started a gradual drift away from, from the extreme to the centre. Uh, mm -hmm. over the rest of my life. But I went out to, uh, to Hong Kong for Christmas in 1988 uh, to visit a good buddy of mine who was a policeman out there. And I went out there, uh, a, a raging lefty, as they say, and um, <laughs> I, I was so completely struck by the entrepreneurial spirit of the people that I met there and about how people were maybe born with nothing but their own wits and uh, their the great um, success that they could have with just driving themselves. And I got a real buzz and a bug for, for business at that point. Um, uh, and um, just got stronger and stronger as the years went by. It's been love ever since. Yeah, it's been love ever since. <laughs> love and hate and equal... No, I love, I, I, I love business. I think it's great. It's fantastic. So I suppose that the interest in IT then came from the engineering background. Yeah, it, it did. Very much so. Um, and uh, so I, I, 
I started IT, I guess, in 1982, I guess, was the first time I touched a computer. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it just got stronger and stronger. So it was quite early in, in the in computing days. It was. Um, I, I was looking back. I was really fortunate that the, yeah. the guy that ran our chemical engineering department was a bit of a computer geek. And, you know, he even in the early 80s, he was manufacturing um, uh, components for, for computers in China. And in yeah. fact, selling computers back to China. He's a bit of a bit of whiskey that way. Um, and, and a lot of our labs were based on the use of IT to, to do different things in engineering, whether it was to manage a distillation column or to run mathematical models of, of different things. And um, yeah, very early. So I was programming in basic in Fortran. Remember Fortran? Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, even COBOL and Pascal and all these sorts of things. So yeah, it's it, this is like industrial archaeology now. But, uh, <laughs> but it was... But it's, I, I feel lucky to have entered at the early days of IT because I got a good understanding of the, the basics, the groundwork, if you like. Yeah. Um, so uh, although I probably wouldn't understand any of the computing languages today, I've got a good idea of how IT systems hang together um, mm. and, and how to make them work pretty well. So where, where, tell me a bit more about that journey of moving from the doing of IT to more of the, the management and the business side. Mm. Okay, um, so the first time I ever did any real kind of business typey stuff uh, with IT um, was with Anderson Consulting, and our shtick at that time was very much that uh, we we could build computer systems to to um, automate transactions for for whatever, be it banking or or, or whatever, um, and um, so like like a lot of people in my my situation. Uh, I, I built uh, some information management systems for the the newly uh, deregulated uh, power industry at the time, uh, so national power. Um, uh, I then moved on. <laughs> I did, this, I did a, a, an interesting piece, again, as a coder at this time, designer and coder, for mm -hmm. the Department of Employment, who were doing a survey of all uh, England and Wales businesses. And um, what they had was they had this, it was the early days of uh, scanning an OCR. So they had they were sending out these forms which had to be filled in black ink and then they were going to be uh, sent back into the government. They would scan it and extract all the data using OCR and, and then, you know, do the manipulation on the back of it. Um, yeah. And I did the, I designed and built the program that took the data, manipulated it and squirted it into reports. So I did all that sort of stuff. Um, and then got into client server, uh, which again is industrial archaeology, but at the time was kind of bleeding edge technology. Um, yeah. And uh, and that's the point at which I started to manage IT and IT resources rather than doing it myself. So I, was, um, I went out to, to California, actually originally to replatform a, uh, a billing system for, for telecoms um, mm -hmm. from DB2 and uh, MVS to uh, Oracle on Unix because of my C and Unix background. Um, mm -hmm. That deal kind of fell through while I was out there and I stayed on to, to do some work with the local Anderson consulting team, as I say, building this online ordering thing. And, and that gave me a real bug for, for managing IT teams because um, suddenly, uh, never having managed anything properly before other than myself, I was in charge of 16 people um, from a total of, I think, nine different countries. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, 
some of those were really deep technologists, you know, deep into the uh, into networking. Uh, some were very deep into um, uh, databases and the like. Others were like myself, generalists. And I had got to understand the real joy of managing people with different skill sets. And you know, at this point, it wasn't really about IT anymore. It was about business and the application of what we were doing. Um, but also the real joy of managing people from different cultures. Mm-hmm. So, you know, trying to manage a team that had someone from Japan, someone from China, um, people from Norway and the States, and get them all to work to their best of their abilities was, frankly, a bit of a headache. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, that, and that kind of continued throughout my career. So I, I actually I created a kind of specialism for myself of managing maybe not the biggest uh, teams and programs in the world. I mean, I think the biggest program I managed was about $20 million or something. But um, it was managing complex teams to do complex things. So... At, at, one, at one point, I was um, I was outsourcing um, the um, accounts payable for Schlumberger, the the oil and gas guys, uh, uh, in seventy seven countries around the world, and so I had people working on IT and business um, in in four or five different continents at a time. I just loved that, you know the the um, learning from people uh, from different cultures who you know don't don't understand what you're talking about because you you know I, I'm out a white Anglo-Saxon male. And you know, <laughs> I, I have a certain way of thinking and that's not the same as a an Indian lady, you know, and, and suddenly you think, why are we not communicating here? And you have to kind of yeah. unwind your own mental processes. So, sorry, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent here, but... Um, no, it's lovely. So how, how did you do that? Because it's it's a skill set, yeah. being able to do that. It's a skill set managing people in different time zones, different cultures, people that might never even meet each other in person. Oh, absolutely. So how did you learn? How did you go through that journey? By making lots of mistakes, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> making lots of mistakes and parking my ego at the door, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, you, you have to learn how to be properly humble. Um, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example to, to say how, but, but you know, I just, I think if you, if you genuinely feel that whoever you're working with is a skilled person trying to do their best then mm-hmm. it can take you an awfully long way um yeah. but but i guess the other thing is i'm, and I'm really thinking that on the hoof here um establishing cultural norms for the team was always a big thing so uh always making sure that people felt that they could speak out you know and if you're uh, i don't know if you manage much stuff in uh, asia but you know a lot of asian people i've found are very um, they find it difficult to challenge the boss. Uh, yeah. or, and, and even if they're not challenging the boss, they, they find it difficult to speak up unless they're asked specifically to speak on something. So, you know, having to respect that and understand it um, and, and and make sure you always do things two or three times and go back and ask the same question two or three times in different ways at different times. Yeah. Um, it's uh, that, That's kind of one of the things I did. Um, and the other is actually stopping some of the other cultures in the world from being dominant. So, you know, it, it, this is not a racist thing, but if you've got a bunch of uh, high-achieving Americans uh, on a call with a bunch of very humble people from Asia or somewhere else, then, you know, the loudest voices tend to rule, and you've got to make sure that the loudest voices don't rule. You, yeah. you give a good balance to the team. Um, and I guess the other thing, so the thing which really 
made me successful was that everyone always had their own thing they brought to the team. So everyone had their own win, the, the thing that which they could point to to say, I did that, we were successful because we did that. And so they've got a chance yeah. to celebrate for everyone all the time. That builds confidence for people to, to be able to communicate clearly as well. So those were some of the things I did. Wow. But, and it sounds like you've actually got a real thirst for learning about cultures and learning about other people as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, it's, uh, the, the world's a fantastic and wonderful place. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just, I mean, things like, I keep on going about India because a lot of my work was done in India. Um, yeah. Just the most fascinating place to work because um, certainly in, in my experience, you, you've always got, uh, very different power maps to organizational structures. Mm -hmm. So on an org chart, um, Rahul may report it to Ram, but actually it may be the other way around because of the power dynamics in that particular country. Um, yeah. and, and also there's always someone in the background because they, you know, if you, if you, in India, uh, certainly in outsourcing in my experience, um, the, there's a very strong local culture as much as the local delivery centers have to be seen to be very successful. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And the way that they are successful is by running things in the way that is right for, for India. Uh, and yeah. that's very different to how things are done uh, in the West. So, you know, yeah. we're, we're command and control to some extent. Thankfully we're less command and control than we used to be. Um, but um, we're also about kind of organizational structures and all the rest of it. In India, it's a case of, let's get the damn job done uh, and get on with it. Um, anyway, so so long as you respect um, that people in India might work for you, might report to you, but they don't work for you, they work for somebody else, uh, okay. th then you can be successful because what you've got to do, you've got to find out who's the person for whom everybody works in, your, in, in that particular place and find out what's going to make that person successful. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to do the reverse back, you know, come back to reverse engineer the thing so that whatever you ask your guys to do for your client is going to be in the end successful for the guy that they're working for. Um, and, and I love that. I really do. Um, what, one of the things I used to always do as well, when I was, regardless of where it was, the States or uh, Europe or wherever, um, always take time when I was traveling to take a day away from the office mm -hmm. and just go and try to understand a bit of where it was. Um, I was very lucky in, in some places to be taken to people's homes and see there's a very strange culture shock for someone like me to go to a home to find that the guys that are working for me, they've got you know, maids working for them at home. Um, yeah. or, or, or even, uh, and this, this absolutely slapped me in the face, I went to see one of my guys and uh, his wife wouldn't come and sit in the room with us and eat with us. She, she okay. served her husband, she served me, and then she went off to the kitchen and ate with her boy. We're talking about a lady who, you know, who was very successful in IT consulting on her own, but in 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 her culture, that was the appropriate thing. And oh. yeah, very feels very felt very odd for me, but I was the guest in their country, so I was the one that yeah. was, you know, I had to adapt. Um, yeah. So the the word outsourcing um, over years maybe decades has has grown a bit of a reputation and and might be something that a lot of people are are scared about mm -hmm. i mean we've all heard the horror stories of outsourcing especially when it comes to it yeah what what would your advice be to someone that kind of i suppose wants to step away from those assumptions and learn a bit more 
Um, that's a great question. And I'll probably give three parts to my answer because I tend okay. to give three parts to any answer. Um, what, 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 what one is that don't think about outsourcing as being you getting someone to do kind of your mess for less. Um, uh, that 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 is a way you can do it, but I I, I don't see great value in that. Um, outsourcing is a way of you being able to access great skills, great teams um, in other in other places, not necessarily different parts of the world, because you can do outsourcing onshore, um, yeah. or offshoring and outsourcing, as you know, are, are totally different things. Um, so that's that's number one: access to to create people, great skills. Number two is that actually by outsourcing you give yourself uh, a, a chance to have a, a kind of variable workforce. So it's a great example. I, I did a, a thing for um, Sit Up TV, which is a, a late night shopping channel. Um, I have to watch what I say before, unless I say something rude, but um, it, it's, 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 it's tend to, people that tend to purchase from it tend to have perhaps been out partying before they, they go online. Uh, anyway, um, and, 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 they, um, and their business is such that, uh, the business that they do is mostly around Christmas. So in yeah. October and November, uh, their uh, workload or their, their transaction volume rather, uh, goes from what would have been a base of 30% of peak right up to peak and it's there for two months and it falls off a cliff right down to 30% again. So wow. I, I, yeah, so I, I set out an outbound telesales um, operation for them in Cebu in the Philippines, um, which allowed them to have you know stable staff throughout the entire year and then staff up really fast um, uh, for two months and then drop off again, and, and that you know that worked for my client uh, because they've got the variable workforce. It worked for people in Cebu because that that tend, that coincided nicely with university holidays, so people get a really great, well-paid job for two months and then go back yeah. to university again, which was, which was lovely. So that's the second part. It gives you a workforce. Um, I think the, the other thing which I would say is think of the team to whom you're outsourcing as not as someone who works for IBM or Accenture or whoever, but they are your team in Delhi or Mumbai or Guangzhou or, or whatever. They're part yeah. of your operation. Um, yeah. And the best people I ever saw doing that were uh, Intertech or one of my clients um, did a bunch of stuff for them, but they took that, that particular thought so far that their CEO went all the way out to uh, Delhi to meet the teams that I was setting up there good, and address them, not as I'm the CEO of this great big business and you should kowtow to me, but as yeah. we're colleagues in a journey together. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I need you to do. And they would have crawled over broken glass for that guy. Um, uh, and that was one of the most successful outsourcing gigs I was ever involved. So and it's about creating partnership, isn't it? It's about creating yeah. true partnership between your provider and yourself. It's oh. not a case, like you said, of having that culture of everything I say is gold dust. Yeah. It's actually, this is a partnership and we both benefit from, from working together and making it work. Exactly so. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. So tell me more about being a consultant and how you found that. <laughs> Um, I, I I loved it. I really did. Um, it's it's pretty hard. You've got to. So first of all, uh, with consulting, um, successful consultants know their stuff. You know, there are there are people who call themselves a consultant. All the actual, they're a contractor for hire, and that's absolutely fine. Uh, but um, 
being a good consultant is about figuring out what your client needs, regardless of what they're asking for or looking for, and helping them get on the journey to, to getting to, to what they need rather than what they want. It's about fitting in very, very quickly. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you should never be a chameleon, but you've got to be able to do what I said before, actually, park your ego at the door, um, be the new kid, but uh, bless you. Um, <laughs> but, but, but learn how to come up to speed really quickly, not just with the business processes your clients are using or the business problems, but with their culture and how they work. You've got to be able to read very quickly the power map of any particular organization. Um, um, and also the other thing is you've got to, I think anyway, you've got to look at your client as, you know, they're the most important person in the world outside of the home. Um, so, you know, it's a, they often say, you know, if, if, when a consultant dies, it's their client's life that's got flashing before the eyes, not their own. Um, and, and I think, <laughs> I think you've got to have that that kind of uh, attitude, and, and also have an attitude of um, really delivering value because you know consultants charge a reasonable fee rate, um, and they they really should justify that. So that, you know, if you're if you're in a consulting gig and you're not providing a wow moment every week or two weeks, you're either in the wrong place or, um, you know, try and have enough one or two. Right. Now, so one thing that I'm sure many consultants all over the world struggle with is they know what's best for the client and the client doesn't listen. Yeah. Yeah. How do you overcome that? Well, um, hopefully by persuasion both explicit and implicit so you've you've got to learn how to take people on a on the loop as it were journeying around from from where they are um and without and difficult for me to give you a good example of that without breaking confidentiality so i'll just yeah. i'll move on from that one um yeah. you've got to earn their trust so that you when you say to them i'm sorry but i think you're wrong and mm -hmm. here's what i think you need to do that they will at the very least listen to that. Um, mm. And a good way that I found of doing that is um, when, I, well, when I was working as a consultant, I would have at least twice a week, and depending on the client and depending on where we were in the journey together, um, maybe more than that, we would have a, a conversation that I would set up for end of the working day, so 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. And it was almost for half an hour. and the really key important things that made it work was there was never an agenda and there were never any minutes. So that meant that we could talk person to person very freely and very openly. Um, yeah. and, and in doing that and in sharing things which could have been very damaging to me, um, albeit, you know, always within the bounds of commercial sensitivities, all the rest of it, um, you build, I find I built very quickly a trusted relationship with my clients so that when I did say something that wasn't what they wanted to hear, they knew it was coming from the right place. Yeah. And, and then the third part of it is telling them in the right place and at the right time. So you don't sit in a meeting and say, oh, you're talking rubbish. What you need to do is X, <laughs> Y, or Z. <laughs> you, you, you find a way of not agreeing but not disagreeing at the same time and then privately one-to-one -one, potentially you, you yeah. tell them. Um, and, and that's also where you get into the, the tricks of, you know, if you're on a difficult steering committee or whatever, of uh, making sure that you're always in control of that so that you can, you know, 
almost of people speaking to a script so that uh, bad decisions can be avoided in real time as well. So that's how you do it. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned throughout your career? It's all about the people. Um, you, you, you can be fantastic at technology. You can know lots about technology. You can have great technology in command and same with processes and all the rest of it. But unless you have got people committed to doing something, it's going to fall flat in its face every time. It's certainly what I'm talking about here, but it's, you know, it's transformational change and that sort of stuff. I'm not talking about running an operation. I think you can make probably the same, same statement about that. Yeah. Um, so that would be number one. Uh, number two is um, trust is a really, really underrated and I don't know what the right word is because it's not a commodity. Um, it's a very, very precious thing. Um, and building trust with people uh, will, will take you places where, which, you know, you, you couldn't go otherwise. Um, and I guess the, the last thing is um, it's important to keep learning um, all the time. If you're not learning something new, then you're, you're kind of... Um, you're probably going to die out pretty soon. So the, 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 last, the last big professional gig that I did uh, was I, I created the roadmap for a, a very large transport company in the UK uh, for their 360 million pound transformation uh, to adopt the Internet of Things. Um, mm -hmm. And that was kind of, the, the IoT was new to me. Um, their way of working was new to me. Um, it was going back to my old roots in AI, which was good fun. Um, but, you know, that, 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 because I was learning new stuff, that kept me interested, it kept me sharp. Um, and kept me going. So that'll be the last thing. Yeah. Okay, this is a random one for you. Okay. What is one thing within the technology or business world, maybe it's a combination of both, that you feel is lost in with today's culture that you wish you could bring back? Does that make sense? Uh, yes, I think it does. Um, that's a really difficult because there's well i'll give you my answer um well, yeah because we can always edit this out if, if it gets too <laughs> um and it's actually it's a very very simple thing and it's very uh opposite to scotland which is i i think and i, and I mean just within scotland here not britain or whatever um mm -hmm. Despite what we might read in the newspapers, I think we've lost our entrepreneurial edge. I yeah. think I think Scotland, uh, as a business community, is largely run by a very small number of tens of white males, um, and I think they're all they're quite inward looking. And uh, I think we, as a country, have got a fantastic bunch of very well educated, very hardworking, imaginative people whose skills and ambitions we're not using to the, the best of our combined uh, success. So if we could just get back to having a bit of, um, a bit of curiosity about what happens elsewhere and in different parts of the world done by different people rather than by the same old few old people, uh, we would be a far happier and better business community than we are now. So you mentioned that it was the entrepreneurship in Hong Kong that got you interested mm. in, in business. Mm. Did you see that replicated anywhere else along your travels? Yeah, actually. Um, India, very strongly. Um, 
possibly for the same reasons of where they were in their economic cycle. Um, uh, very much there. I, I'd say with with Microsoft as well. Actually, within the organisation, they are you know they're personally very uh, entrepreneurial. So they mm-hmm. certainly when I first did my first gig with them, which was to um, rearrange their uh, re uh, to transform all of their outbound telesales into the small medium business sector in Europe. Um, they were kind of ripping up the company inside every six months, um, and they yeah. were really entrepreneurial. That was terrific. Um, the place where I didn't see it, you might be surprised, is the States. Really? Um, I've, my, my experience of the States, which is mostly West Coast, but a, a bit of the Midwest and a reasonable amount of East Coast experience, um, is that people are very corporatist there. And entrepreneurialism is talked about, but entrepreneurialism is for sales guys and guys yeah. who find, found companies. It's not for the guy on the shop floor or the guy who's you know running the it shop or whatever whereas it should be you know it really should be and i think that's possibly a, a function of the you know the corporations i've worked for in the states were the you know microsoft and google and disney and these sorts of guys so very very big organizations where it's difficult to be entrepreneurial maybe yeah um but as i say microsoft managed it um so i guess everyone else should be up to two yeah. That makes sense. I was having a discussion with Helen Potter of Potter Innovation, and we were having this discussion over innovation mm-hmm. and who is innovation for. And she said, everyone, everyone can innovate. It's yeah. not just certain people that can innovate, just as I suppose you're saying, not just certain people can be entrepreneurs. Anyone can yeah. be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, and she was saying she, she believes that innovation can be taught. You can oh. learn it. Okay. Do you think it's the same for, inno- for entrepreneurship? I think it can be encouraged. I think you can put in place the kind of cultural norms that allow people to feel safe about being entrepreneurial. I think you can help people to look inside themselves to be entrepreneurial. But my suspicion is you're entrepreneurial or you're not. But that's the same as saying, you know, you can play guitar or you can't. There's probably a lot more great guitarists out there than people who've ever picked up a, a guitar. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, I, I, so I guess it's a little bit of yes and a little bit of no. Um, <laughs> just, oh, I hate being so even-handed. <laughs> <laughs> I spent years being even-handed. <laughs> <laughs> so what? Let's go down that route then. So, um, what would be your most controversial thought when it comes to business? Wow. That's a great one. Uh, <laughs> oh, you see, you know, you, you're tempting me here to, to shoot myself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> please don't, please don't okay, shoot no, yourself. No, 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 shoot, 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 shoot whatever I have left of a career. Um, no, I, I think the, <laughs> there's there's a there's an awful lot of so, so my really controversial thought is there's an awful lot of business support that's provided either from the private sector or from the public sector, which is an absolute waste of time and money. Um, uh, and you know, I'm, I won't give any specific examples because that would be too rude about people who maybe are trying to do a very good job. Uh, yeah. But uh, you know, I, I, I come across so many different fora that people go to um, supposedly to make the businesses more um, uh, effective. And actually all they are is they're, 
they're very nice ways of spending a couple of days with some nice people and having a, a few drinks of an evening. Um, and, and you know, I, it, it breaks my heart because you know there are there are a lot of there's a lot of good that could be done for people, um, but uh, unless we find a way of helping people who are being helped to to control that process. Um, I, I think we'll, we'll continue to waste a, a heck of a lot of money on pointless meetings. i give you a great example. Um, not the IOD, but an, a, an organisation very similar to the IOD in Scotland. I, I was invited to a, an afternoon discussion on productivity with them. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I seem to be alone amongst the 25 people in the room uh, that was aware of the irony of bringing people from all over Scotland together for a four-hour meeting in one place to talk about productivity um, when you know, we'd all wasted a day to travel there. Um, and uh, and, and it, it, was, it was just a talking shop for people with buzzwords. And, um, and that, that's a shame because, you know, no, nobody goes to what wanting to do a bad job. Everyone goes to yeah. what, wanting to do a good job. And so... Um, Anyway, I think I made my point and I'm now rambling, so I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a very valid, valid point. So there's almost like a um, call to business owners, I suppose, of not second guessing, but maybe questioning their decisions. Yeah. Questioning where the help actually is and what's needed. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I, 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 and I think that comes from having a clarity of the way you get there is you have a clarity about what you're trying to achieve, which doesn't yeah. mean to say you need to spend three months navel gazing coming up with a strategic plan. But, you know, it should be possible for any business owner or any working in any part of business to explain to a relatively bright 12 year old in about two minutes what they're doing and why they're doing it and what they hope to achieve out of it. Um, yeah. and, and, and to be honest, I, I seldom go into a business meeting unless I've had that virtual discussion in my mind with a fairly bright 12 year old um, yeah. about what we're trying to do. And if you do that, then, you know, you, you can make up your own mind about whether you, you want to have four of your people go off for a two day jolly in Edinburgh talking about, you know, ERP transformation or probably the, maybe just getting on and doing working a little bit harder might be a picture <laughs> piece of their time. <laughs> Point. <laughs> <laughs> so you seem like my impression of you is that you're a very dedicated person loves working loves keeping busy mm. so you mentioned you're retired are mm -hmm. you actually retired or do you have a few projects on the go uh yes and no so um <laughs> I, I i'm i'm looking to get busy uh, a little busier again i'd like i'd like to uh pick up a couple of the trusteeships or non-exec directorships or whatever because um, yeah. I feel I've got a lot to contribute um, yeah. uh, but no, no, there's, there's nothing kind of no real hot irons in the fire for there at the moment uh, right right now I am spending a lot of time uh, becoming the best jazz guitarist I can be uh, which is Excellent. probably not very good but you know heck I enjoy it uh, <laughs> teaching myself to play piano um, and I'm, I'm getting in touch more with my artistic side and my, my character. So, you know, spending time with photography and all that sort of stuff. So I am pretty yeah. busy. Uh, just not very much of it is value add to MBS at the moment. Well, I wonder that created coming into this um, post COVID ness. 
Mm -hmm. however you can phrase it. Mm -hmm. I've certainly seen that there's, there's a bigger movement now towards that mind, mindfulness and, and work-life balance. Mm. So, I mean, finding those hobbies that are outside of work, I, I think many business people and perhaps many IOD members are very work oriented, shall we say. Yeah. Yeah. But work is a passion. And I think it is for all of us. Work is a passion. We love what we do. Yeah. Um, so do you feel like that there's, how do I phrase this without it being too leading? Um, those hobbies, do, do you not feel that having those hobbies for yourself make you a better consultant? Oh, definitely. Oh, without a yeah. doubt. So I've, I've, I've always had strong hobbies. I've always been very interested in the, uh, the performing and visual arts. Uh, as an example, um, and uh, very much, I mean, Dennis Healy, the, the Labour Party politician, uh, always said that uh, hinterland was the most important thing for him. So he was a passionate photographer, and uh, he was a, he felt he was a much more effective politician because he could spend hours at a time away doing something completely different. I, I, yeah. I couldn't I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, yeah. Thankfully, we're moving away from the brutal kind of presenteeism culture that we, we've all seen and, and disliked for so long. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to an organization I, I did some work with not so long ago. Um, and they agree, actually, even better than them, I'll talk about working in Denmark. So um, I, worked in, yeah, I worked in Denmark a few times. And I was always amazed because people did short days at work but they were very focused, hard days at work. And then they all, you know, left at four o'clock in the afternoon to go cycling, running, barbecuing, whatever it was they wanted to do. And, and I think that's really important. You know, good work-life balance. It, and it, your own work-life balance is, is very personal. So I remember speaking to um, uh, the managing partner of Anderson Consulting when I just joined, and he said that, you know, his work-life balance included working probably 100 hours a week and then going to the rugby at the weekend and uh, probably drinking more beer than was, set, was sensible. Um, mm. But that was the balance that worked for him and it wouldn't yeah. work for everybody else. So I think, yeah. I think so long as we can allow ourselves to find our own balance and take the, uh, the risk-reward consequences that come with that, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we've all read numerous books that say have time away from the office, take a mm. holiday and have a proper mm. holiday mm. because it resets your brain and allows you to step away from, from work. And I think certainly the, the most successful business people that I've been aware of have all had moments, uh, all had hobbies of like running, mm. exercising, sure. that time away from a desk yeah. that actually helps reinvigorate their thinking process. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. more. It's terrific. Mm -hmm. So, what would be your advice to business owners coming out of COVID and going into the next two years? Don't waste the crisis. Um, we've we've got a great opportunity now um, to re-examine where and how we work, and with mm -hmm. whom. Um, uh, and in fact, I'm I'm working with someone who happens to be Swedish, actually. Uh, who uh, is, is trying to enter into the uh, the Indian market with um, a particular service. Um, and he's only doing that because his business here in Scotland has suffered and he needs to find new markets to, to conquer. Um, so I think definitely don't waste the crisis. Think very clearly about which what your products and services are. So what's your value proposition? And, you know, jettison things that aren't 
necessarily making you much money or bringing you much happiness or providing much value in some way or other. Focus on those things that are, find your right customers, figure out the best way to deal with them, which quite often is not face-to-face. Sometimes it's online, sometimes it's completely and utterly anonymously. Um, figure out which partners you can use. You can probably tell which business model I'm going through in my mind here, which, um, which business partners to work with uh, who can do things you maybe you do today that you don't really need to do because you can't do them as effectively um, yeah. as they can. It's all of that sort of stuff. What do you think is the biggest lesson that we could have learned during this time? That working is not about being in the office. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, and I think as part of that, that it's perfectly possible to communicate very clearly and well remotely, albeit you need to learn how to do that because it's not a slam yeah. dunk. Um, the, uh, and I think if we can just keep hold of that, that's great. The, the number of people I've talked to have said, have been telling me, you know, it's fantastic. He used to spend five days a week in the office and they would be commuting through the hell of London to get there. And now they go in on a Tuesday and a Thursday, and other than that, they work from home and they're much happier, they've got a better life work balance. Yeah. It's cheaper for the organizations, yada, yada, yada. So I think yeah. if we can just learn that, that'd be great. So one last question for you. Um, and we've already touched upon this, but I want to ask it quite explicitly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Brace for a hard question now. <laughs> um, what are the marks of in your opinion, a successful business leader? That's a tough one to answer. Um, The marks of a successful business leader are actually someone who sets out clearly what they want to achieve and then they've achieved it. And Mm -hmm. that might be, I want to open a newspaper shop five days a week, make sure my customers get served the right first time every time if you do that that's your goal then you're a successful business leader if you're leading a big operation a big corporation or whatever um you might have slightly different goals but again if you deliver and the reason why i'm saying it putting it that way is i don't want to say it's all about some humble person who sits in the corner and you know has meetings with people in circles and you know we all love each other and all the rest of it because that's not appropriate in every single situation in Mm. many more situations than not it's the appropriate way to act Sometimes a bit of command and control is required. Um, so, uh, and that's why I'm saying, you know, set out your goals, be clear about how you're going to achieve them, and be honest and open about how you're going to achieve them, and uh, you know, co- communicate and, uh, and the best of your ability to, to get there um, uh, would be the marks for me. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. The Institute of Directors is in the heart of all major cities and continues to represent your point of view as a business leader, both locally and nationally. Our objective is to ensure that your views are taken into account when the government is reviewing policy, legislation, or seeking the opinions of the wider business community. If you're interested in joining the IOD, please visit www.iod.com. Also take the opportunity to listen to our other IOD podcast, Policy Voice. To join the conversation and share your thoughts in today's episode, engage with us on Twitter or join the IOD LinkedIn Scotland group. 
We hope the rest of your week goes well and look forward to sharing another episode with you next week. Bye.